Oh, good morning. Just uh, would like to thank Adam and the leadership team for offering me a chance to bring God's word to you. It is really, truly an honor to bring God's word to God's people, and so I am honored to do that to you this morning, for you this morning. Um, a couple of words about myself. I know I know a lot of you in this room, um, but uh, my name is Bob Bryant. Um, I'm an assistant pastor over at St. Andrews Presbyterian in Irmo, uh, part-time. I'm also bivocational. I have a business over there, and uh, uh, I went to seminary with Adam, so uh, he and I know each other real well, plus we knew each other from way back before that, too. Um, I am married to Betsy, and we have four daughters who are basically college age, and uh, so we're having a busy time in our lives. Um, So that's about it about me, I think, so... um, um, I think normally you guys stand when you read God's Word. Um, this is a pretty long text, so I think I'm going to allow you to sit here. That's okay. <laughs> uh, don't take the Word any less seriously than, than Adam would, would, would give you, but uh, because it is a long text this morning, I'll, I'll allow you to go ahead and be seated. Um, but do keep in mind that this is the Word of God, and uh, it's inerrant and infallible as originally given. So we're in John chapter 16. Oh, before I go there too, let me make a, one or two comments. This is in the latter part of the Upper Room Discourse. It's also known as the Farewell Discourse. Jesus is giving his disciples some encouragement because he's getting ready to leave them. Um, this is really the last time Jesus will speak to his disciples before he goes to the cross as a group. So um, it's, it's a very poignant uh, farewell speech, if you will, a goodbye, a long goodbye. So let's read that together in John chapter 16, beginning with verse uh, 16, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, a little while? And you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep. And lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is given birth, she, is, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you 
because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using the figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Lord, I need your help this morning. I need your Holy Spirit to come and do his good work in our hearts. As has already been prayed and sung, Lord, we need you here to minister to us. Use your word now in the hearts of everyone within within earshot to change us into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. All for your glory and for your grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, throughout my children's small childhood, I would... I was forced (laughs) to take business trips, long business trips, uh, at least once a year. And I remember those times very poignantly uh, because I hated to leave home. I was fortunate not to have to do a whole lot of travel for business, but the time that I had to take this trip, I had to leave the house and I had to leave my small children and wife. And it was a very sad time for me to leave. Um, And then as the week wore on and as the week got closer to the end, Uh, my anticipation of reunion with them began to grow. And I began to get excited to see them again and get the hugs and the daddy daddies and things like that 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 are so sweet to get from from little children. And then I would see them uh, either in the driveway usually or sometimes in the airport and uh, they would come and welcome me home. And that was such a time of joy, joyful reunion. Um, that I just remember that being very poignant for me. Well, saying goodbye and, and consequent reunions is really something that's such a part of our day-to-day life that we don't really think much about it. Really, only the more significant goodbyes that we experience do we pause to reflect on any significance they might have. Well, as Jesus was saying his goodbyes in this passage, his disciples did sense This was of great importance. In this farewell discourse, we're going to catch a glimpse of the gospel. We're going to catch a glimpse of the gospel being worked out in a long goodbye. First off, in the sorrow of loss. There's a sorrow to to departure usually when when you're leaving your loved ones. Then there's an anticipation of seeing them again. And finally, there's a reunion that's anticipated, that actually comes to pass, and that joy, that's joyful. And in many ways, this rehearses the gospel for us by reminding us that, our king, that the Lord's kingdom is not of this world. We're not citizens of this world. We belong elsewhere. The sorrow of being away from our true home is comforted by the anticipation and reality of his presence and by the hope of his return. The victorious work that Christ did by going away, then providing us with another helper, 
the Holy Spirit promises us an abiding and perfect peace. You know, it's been said, I don't know who said it, but it's been said that parting is such sweet sorrow. Well, in many cases, parting is just hard. Jesus' prediction of his disciples' sorrow over his departure was that they would weep, that they would lament. And these verses give us three difficult and one hopeful implication to the sorrow of parting, to the goodbyes of this life. First, we see a sorrow of separation. And then we see a sorrow of the world's reaction to that separation. And then we see a sorrow attributed to disappointed dreams. And then hopefully, in a hopeful manner, we see that sorrow is only temporary. It usually and almost always ends. So let's talk about the sorrow of separation. Usually there's a range of personal loss when you say goodbye to somebody, isn't there? Uh, When you kiss your spouse goodbye in the morning when you're going to work, there is a small loss that you will not see her for the day and that you'll miss her. This is loss. And then there's the great loss, the greater losses of saying goodbye. Um, I remember when my dad passed away, I didn't really know he was going to die that night, but I remember a very poignant goodbye that I had with him in the hospital. And he and I shed tears. I, I, I hugged him. And I did say goodbye to him. And I told him I loved him. And that's a great loss. That was a great loss. Even then, not knowing that he would die that night, to just go away from him in that state that he was in was of great loss to me. Well, there's another great loss here. The disciples had invested everything, and I mean everything, in Jesus for three years. Jesus was their security. Jesus had the answers. He had the answers to their issues. They didn't have to go anywhere. They had the answers to their problems right there with them 24-7 for three years. He was truly their security, security blanket. Jesus was also their friend. He wasn't uh, a a fair-weather friend. He was a friend that loves perfectly. He loved them perfectly. Jesus was also their leader. He guided them where they needed to go. They didn't have to ask questions about what was next. Jesus was guiding them. This was the man that they invested everything in. So their loss was real. Indeed, the sorrow of parting is difficult, but the sorrow over the world's attitude, in this case, towards Jesus, in verse 20, was that that the world would hate him, that they would rejoice over his death. And then, as we learn in a minute, the disciples' world will soon be turned upside down as well. They will no longer be in the same cocoon of instruction and love that they had been for the last three years. You know, they realized that probably that they were outsiders, but the success, success that the world experienced by killing Jesus actually emboldened the enemies to persecute this Jewish sect. In fact, they persecuted this Jewish Jewish sect, which was later called the Way. They wanted to persecute it out of existence. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16. They will put you out of the synagogues 
Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They actually thought that they were doing God good by destroying the sect. So this was coming. This was the sorrow that they were experiencing over the world's attitude. You know, our world today is really the same way. It's not really that violent towards the, the, the Jesus that the world creates, right? Because the Jesus the world creates is sanitized. He's all loving. He's not exclusive. He's a relativist. He's not a Bible-believing person. He's the savior of thera- therapeutic people with just problems. He's not the savior of horrific sinners. This is who the world paints as Jesus. But in reality, Jesus is these things. He is exclusive. He is a Bible-believing person. He is the Savior of a lost people full of sin, the worst kind of sin. We need to train ourselves, folks. We need to train ourselves to expect rejection from this world if we follow this kind of Jesus. This is the sorrow that we will encounter over his loss. And then the third kind of sorrow is a sorrow over disappointed dreams. We see in Luke chapter 24, and we're not going to flip there, uh, two of the disciples were traveling on a road to a small town called Emmaus. And they had hoped uh, that Jesus would turn out to be something different. It says in Luke 24, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. They had hoped that Jesus was going to be a solution to their problems. We've all had, we're all familiar with having our dreams dashed, I think, if we've been alive a little while. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, the dream of a job promotion, being passed over for uh, a job promotion that you think you're due. That's a disappointment. Maybe it's a favorite political candidate. Maybe it's somebody you really had hoped would make a difference, and that person has turned out to be not as, not as good as you would hope they would be. Maybe it's a hope in a new relationship. Maybe you would hope that this person would really understand you. They would get you. They would love you like you wish they would. Maybe it's a charismatic leader like a pastor. Maybe your hope is in somebody like that. Maybe your hope has been dashed by somebody like that. And it could be, maybe it's a restful retirement. Maybe you thought that retirement was going to look a certain way, and when you got there... It's totally different than what you expected. Uh, These dreams have been dashed. Well, these disciples had wagered their whole lives, everything on this man Jesus, that he was going to rescue them from all of their problems and save their nation uh, from the Romans. There was nothing left now but broken dreams. Have you ever come to a point in your life where your dreams are broken and shattered on the ground? Have you almost despaired of hope during times like this? If so, you can take heart because sorrows are always only temporary in Christ. The sorrows only last a little while. In fact, Jesus compares them here to childbirth. Look at verse, uh, well, before we look at that verse, let's look at Isaiah 26. This is actually a common Old Testament analogy to compare difficulties with childbirth. And I wanted to read this chapter out of Isaiah 26, this uh, passage out of Isaiah 26 for you. Um, and it talks about the, the pain of being disciplined and then the delight of deliverance from that discipline. 
He says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who rides and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Hard times like this can be found uh, anywhere, but they always come to an end. We're also encouraged in in a verse like Psalm 30 that says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And like the rays of the first dawn, the rays the first rays of dawn, the birth of joy really begins with anticipation. In this joyful anticipation of Jesus' return, he said, I must go and I must send another. You see, Jesus did return to his disciples, didn't he? About for 40 days after he was raised from the dead. He did return to them, but then he left again. So now we who are left waiting for him to return a second time, we who are in the church age, have the joy of spiritual sight by his spirit. He is with us now. In fact, Matthew 28, 20 tells us, And behold, I am with you always, always, to the end of the age. He is with us now. The disciples really did not understand how this was going to happen. They didn't understand how this was going to work out. Uh, at this point, they didn't realize what the Spirit was going was to be about and what he was going to do in the absence of Jesus until after Pentecost, and then they realized it. The presence of the Holy Spirit, he tells us in verse 7 of chapter 16, is actually better. It's actually better for Jesus to go so that the Spirit can come. The Holy Spirit is our helper, and he is the deposit of the hope that we have for Jesus' return. So where does that take us? Anticipating God's return, uh, Jesus' return, joy now comes from looking to him, looking to him through the means of grace. Let's hear a familiar passage from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Have you ever stared at something so beautiful that you really couldn't stop staring? And if you're married, I hope that's your spouse. <laughs> But think about some landscape things. Maybe you've been in a beautiful place and you just couldn't quit staring at how beautiful the place was uh, that you're at. Maybe you 
begin to, in your mind, in your mental, mental image of trying to memorize details, I know I've done that, contemplating the meaning of what you're seeing maybe, it's really transformative. Um, about mm, six or seven years ago, I went on a hike, and if you've been here, I, if you haven't been here, I highly encourage it, at Zion National Park, and this hike is called Angel's Landing. And Angel's Landing is a spectacular hike. And I, I don't think I've ever been on a hike anywhere near this spectacular. But uh, you're sitting on this uh, precipice, and it's really kind of a rock that sticks straight up in the air about two or 3,000 feet. And you're looking 270 degrees of this beautiful mountain landscape all around you. And it's, it's a climb to get up there. So, um, but, but just the beauty of that is transformative. You, you sat there and you stared at it. And you couldn't take your, your eyes off of what you're seeing. Well, in a similar way, we need to stare at Jesus, this passage tells us. We need to gaze. We need to look to him, gaze at him like this beautiful image. But we're not just told to sit and gaze all day, are we? He tells us that we're to lay aside every weight and sin and to run. Well, what do you think this means? What does it mean to lay aside every weight and sin and to run? Well, one of the commentators, James Boyce, says that we do one, one way we do this is through the watchful prayer of being in him. The watchful prayer of being in him. And verses 23 through 27 kind of points us to how Jesus was going to redefine prayer for us. So the nature of prayer. What is the nature of prayer? Uh, the word ask is used five times in this passage, five times. It refers to both Jesus and the Father. And the, the, the disciples wanted to ask all these questions because they didn't understand things. And their, their questions to Jesus and to the Father were really ignorant, but they were honest. They had honest questions. Really, their prayers were just conversations, conversations with our Lord. So that's an encouragement to you. Don't ever feel unworthy to have a conversation with your Creator, no matter how uh, you might feel unworthy of your words not, not being appropriate. Don't feel, don't feel unworthy of having a conversation in prayer with Him. And then there's the privilege of prayer in verses 23 and 24. He uses the term, in Him. And this is a common term that Paul also uses in his epistles, but what does it mean to be in him? It means that we are assured that our prayers are answered. They're heard and answered because we are in Christ. And then there's effective prayer. What is effective prayer? The in him that we talked about a second ago means to come to God as one who is identified with Jesus Christ by faith. One who is identified with Jesus Christ by faith. When we pray in him, we pray on the basis of his infinite, endless merit. Imagine having a, uh, a Venmo account. <laughs> I know there's a lot of millennials in here, so I want to be appropriate. Uh, Venmo is, a, I don't know if you know, it's a, something my kids use to move money around. Ima imagine you had a Venmo account that had an unlimited bank account attached to it. Well, this is how we pray. We pray in the unlimited merit of Jesus. The praying in him also means praying in line with his character and with his objectives. You know, when we pray, we're not just to ask for what we want. We're to pray in line with his objectives uh, and his priorities. Next, we have the promise of prayer. 
What are, what are the promises of prayer? Well, there's really two that this commentator gives. He promises in verse 25 that he will no longer speak in uh, allegory or in uh, hidden statements. He was going to speak plainly. So he will give us a new understanding to those who ask. We will have new understanding. He's going to speak plainly to us uh, through our prayer. Do we, ever act, do we ever lack understanding? Of course we do. We lack understanding all, all the time. Well, God promises to provide us, to grant us with understanding. So one thing we get as a promise of prayer is understanding. A second thing is that our joy will be completed. He tells us in verse 24 in two ways. One, we'll get what we're asking for, and that's a natural joy of receiving what our prayer request is. But oftentimes, and sometimes maybe more often, what we get is even better than what we ask for. It's Jesus himself. It's a revealed character of who he is to understand more of who he is. So these are some of the benefits of prayer that go into our anticipation uh, as we wait for Christ's return. And goodbyes produce sorrow, anticipation of seeing Christ again, and then finally this joy of eventual reunion that we'll have in Christ um, is something we look forward to. The resurrection encounter uh, from John 20 talks about the joy that the, that the disciples had. They were all, I don't know if you remember the story, they're all huddled in this locked house. And uh, some of the folks, some of the women and, and uh, Peter, I think, ran out to the tomb. They found that Jesus had been resurrected there. And they ran back and they couldn't even get into the house. These people were so scared that their door stayed locked and wouldn't even let people in until they banged and banged and banged. And finally, finally, they did let them in. But then Jesus revealed himself to them in John 20. They said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. Another word for that is that they rejoiced when they saw their Lord. Great joy. Think about that. They had lost so much. They had anticipated. And now they were reunited with him in this joyful reunion. Well, we, and similarly, we eagerly await his second coming, or we should be. In fact, Hebrews 9 tells us, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you get that? Eagerly waiting for him. You know, folks, we should feel a hundred times more excited than a five-year-old on Christmas morning about Jesus coming back. It won't be about longing for some earthly toys. It'll be about longing for the creator, our creator, the creator of the universe. He will set all things instantly right and will remove the disappointment and sorrows of this life instantly. So I ask you again, are you eagerly and joyfully awaiting his return today? I hope you will. So as we work our way through the anatomy of Jesus' earthly goodbye, into an anticipatory reunion with him, and then imagining his actual return to us, which will occur, we're left with a certain supernatural peace that Jesus gave his disciples and also gives us. And our peace is centered in his victory. Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
So what is peace? What is this peace that Jesus is talking about? One definition was that it's contentment and trust in God despite, despite our circumstances. James Boyce puts two criteria or two conditions on this, uh, this peace, though. There are two things that have to occur for us to have this peace. First, we must be in me or in him. And it's not just about being saved either. We must depend on him. We must trust him. We must remain close to him in this life. So being in me is first being faith in Christ and then remaining close to him, remaining uh, uh, as close to him as you can be. And then the second thing is to remember these things as he talks about in this verse. What are these things he's talking about here? Well, a couple things about that. The words of Christ must be in us, his followers, so what, what are these things specifically talking about? First of all, the fact of Christ's love. He loved his followers then, and he loves us now. Listen to what John 13 says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the first thing we need to remember of these things is the fact that Jesus loves us and this is such a trite expression, uh, but it's so important that we remember uh, how powerful this truth is. Jesus loves his own. Secondly, Jesus spoke of heaven uh, and his interest in heaven. Uh, in, in John chapter 14, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If this were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We have an interest in heaven with Jesus. And then thirdly, the coming of this Holy Spirit. He tells us in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and just, just judgment. So a third benefit is that the, the Spirit of God himself comes to us. These are, this is another thing we're to remember. And then the fourth thing is that we're to remember that there's work to be done. Work that the disciples were to perform. Listen to what he says in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then lastly, we're to remember prayer and the promises about it. We spoke about that in a minute, but he mentions that again in John 14 when he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. These are the things we're to hang on to. These are the things that bring this peace that we so desire in this light, life. And then he says a, 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 a summary uh, thing in the end of verse 33. He says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Folks, we're on the winning side. 
we have no reason for despair. Christ is coming again to set his creation back in order. He's coming again to gather his people back to himself. Don't be discouraged. This is the message he gave his disciples. Don't be discouraged by what you're going to see. So we, in this life, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by difficult trials and, and tribulation. Don't be discouraged when you're neglected or, uh, or abused somehow. Remember that you are on the winning side, and he is coming to set things right. So have you ever said goodbye to someone you love that you thought you'd never see again in this life? I just mentioned that I have. Probably some of you have. If so, you have felt the pain of great loss. Not little loss, but great loss. Well, Jesus felt an even greater loss on the cross. Really, he felt the greatest loss ever. After taking on the sins of all of his children, the Father turned away from him. And never, never in eternity had there been any distance between the Father and and the Son. This was truly divine agony. Then for three days, the world quickly sought to forget the whole thing. As his body was languishing in a grave. Finally, on the third day, as you know, he was raised from the dead and again was fully restored to his disciples as a resurrected Christ. And what a reunion that was. A foretaste of the reunion that we'll experience when he comes a second time. Have you been reunited today with a risen Jesus? Have you seen him with joy and embraced him? If you haven't, cast away the sorrow of your past sins. Come now with eager anticipation of his welcome. And when you do, there'll be no more goodbyes for us. There are no more goodbyes for us in Christ. Because of our reunion with Jesus, we who are his children will never need to say goodbye to him again. He has promised to never leave, leave those who are in him. And we now have an abiding peace and a security with God that stretches forever and ever into eternity. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, you are so grateful, gracious to us to provide for us in this manner. Lord, as we think about how you provided for your disciples all those years ago, how they were about to undergo the most traumatic days of their life, yet you loved them, you comforted them, you gave them joy and understanding, Lord, that things would even be better as a result of, of you going away. So, Lord, I pray that if there are any, of these room, any in this room that have not embraced you in this way, do not, have not had a reunion with you of sorts, to know that you are their Lord and their Savior and that you love them, that they're not holding on to these things that he mentions in verse 33. I pray that, Lord, you would get them now and draw them to yourself. Prepare their hearts, Lord, to be in your company for all eternity. And, Lord, we just lift these things up to you, knowing that you are so good and gracious to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.